0: Uh, We live in a very interesting world. I mean, I think about this in this series, the book of Acts. Uh, We're still following along. We're still, we're going to be in Acts 17. So if you have your Bible, you could get ready for that. But I think about technology and how cool it is to be in such a technologically advanced age to still have a presentation of the gospel. To still lead and be led in worship, if you didn 't catch Pastor Aaron on the worship team on friday night it 's still on our facebook page it 's about an hour of just just incredible passionate worship. You can still participate in that, and I began to think about that you know we live in a great age, but it wasn 't always the case right Imagine if you will, if you go back in time. Uh, What it would be like if we had this pandemic. Uh, There have been pandemics in the past. There have been struggles in the past with health people couldn't meet. But I I went back and I just kind of just searched a little bit. I thought, what if this coronavirus uh, pandemic had happened 100 years ago? Uh, We would still be sending letters to one another. It would take about two to three days. It cost half a penny 100 years ago. And you would write down, a person would write a message. And I'd probably be ser- sending my sermons out via U.S. mail. If it happened 90 years ago, I could still use the telegraph. The telegraph was a great thing. The tel- uh, it was just four minutes uh, it would take to get a message anywhere in the world. Um, unfortunately for me, my sermon would be 12 words long. And everybody said amen, right? Uh, or the telephone. If you were to you know, jump about 80 years ago in the 1930s and 40s, the telephone became the most popular communication tool for one another over long distances. Or 70 years ago, you could have used the radio phone, which really became popular in use during World War II and the 40s. 60 years ago, I could have faxed you my sermon. That would be kind of cool, right? Uh, fax machine came uh, for businesses, and the invita- uh, in- invention of that was unbelievable. Now all we ever get are just junk faxes. Uh, even 50 years ago, do you realize that we could have emailed? That was pretty, you know informal pretty uh, basic rudimentary kind of email system but we could have emailed 50 years ago most of us didn't really pick up on email till AOL and those discs kept coming in everything we we bought uh, or in the mail but email was a popular way uh, 40 50 years ago Uh, also 40 years ago we could have used mobile phones if you were rich and had a really expensive car uh, the modern cell phone was invented in the 70s but it was massive it was a, a struggle to use But if it had happened 30 years ago, you know what? Did you know the emoji was created 30 years ago? It wasn't called that, but it was the emoticon. And a guy sent it out for the first time in an email in 1982 to make sure that all the other professors in the university knew he was kidding 20 years ago, we could have texted this message out in all of our worship songs. Uh, the coronavirus would have happened 10 years ago. We probably would still be using the technology, FaceTime, uh, Facebook Live. And I think it's an amazing time to be alive and to utilize these things. And the challenge, I think, for us, and maybe those of us that are older, is how do we use technology to advance the message of Jesus? See, so the message of Jesus is 2,000 years old. And how it spread was from contact, just like a virus, from one person to the next. It became something that overcame all of the darkness in the world. And it dispelled all the doubts about Jesus. And people, one by one, shared the message of Christ. Culture changes. Technology changes. The message of God doesn't change. But how do we take the never-changing message of God and see the changing culture? Uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul do that in a beautiful way today in the book of Acts. If you've been with us, uh, maybe you're brand new with us, I'll just get you up to speed. Uh, the message that Jesus shared when he was alive was of hope through Jesus Christ in the way, the truth, and the life that you could repent of your sins and turn to God and be saved. And you would have not just an eternity with God, but the fullest life, the best life possible now, the abundant life. And when he died and went on that cross to carry all of our sins and to pay for all of our own brokenness. Then he rose again and he ascended to, this, to heaven. And before, just before he did that, he gave a command to the disciples to go everywhere to tell this message, to baptize, to teach, to, uh, to make disciples. And he said, you're going to do that in Jerusalem? In Judea and Samaria. We've seen that predominantly by a guy named Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was a former fisherman. He was the first big character in the book of Acts, the first half of Acts. But then it transitioned to the ends of the earth, to where the message went not just into the Middle Eastern area, but into Asia and into Europe. And it was the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee, who led that charge. Now, even after the fall of the Greek Empire and going into the Roman Empire, the city of Athens was still one of the key cultural centers of the world. It was the intellectual capital of the world. To put it in our perspective, it was kind of like the best of Los Angeles and the best of New York City and the best of Washington, D.C., if you imagine there's even a best, right? And you wrap it up with the best of all the Ivy League schools and you would combine it. And that was Athens. It was an amazing culture. And that is where we see Paul going next to share the message of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, Acts 17, verses 16 to 17. I've got it here on the screen it says while Paul was waiting for them in Athens his friends had sent him along in advance and now he's waiting for them in Athens he was deeply troubled literally he was distressed in his soul by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So Paul shows up into Athens. It was a major metropolis of the day, and he hangs out. And using his usual custom, he tries to find common ground with all people. He begins by going into the synagogue, the place of Jewish worship. He's a Jew himself, and so he can walk in freely. Oftentimes, he would be asked to speak as a traveling teacher, as a Pharisee, someone who had great instructors in the heritage and the lineage of the Pharisees, and he would walk in there, and also the God-fearing Gentiles, those that were following the Jewish belief, and he had dialogues with them about Jesus being the Messiah. But in particular, we're going to focus not on the Jewish people being reached, but on the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, the intellectuals of the day. Paul went up to a place called the Acropolis. Now, I've got a couple shots here. I took this picture two years ago uh, on the last night on our Footsteps of Paul tour, and uh, this is the Acropolis. Acropolis just means the, the high place of the city where all the temples were built to all the idols, and you've got the Parthenon up here, the Temple of Nike, and several of the others. There were a lot more there. This is what it looks like today. If you were to go back in time, this is a drawing I sketched out this morning for you. No, not really. Uh, Pick this one up. This is what it would have looked like in Paul's day. Very impressive. Anywhere in the city of Athens, you would see the Acropolis. A lot of cities had Acropolises, but this is this one for Athens. And all of the temples... And you would walk up the steps and you would go and you could worship whatever idol, whatever temple, whatever god or goddess you wanted to. Uh, Poseidon was a particularly famous one up there in that time. And Paul is going around and he sees all this up at the Acropolis and it bothers him. Now, Paul is aware of idol worship. He's acquainted with that. He's already been going into Greek places. But just the overabundance of false worship distressed Paul to his core. And so he moves down into the marketplace. He goes down to what's called um, the Agora. This is a shot right now I took two years ago from um, the uh, Parthenon area looking down, zooming in. This, is, this whole area would have been the Agora. There are hardly any structures left except this one place right here. This is not a temple. This is a marketplace. And so Paul went into the marketplace And this is what it would have looked like at the time. This is this drawing here, looking down, looking up to, being down, looking up into the Acropolis itself. This is what it would have been like. Now, what's the Agora? What's the marketplace? It's not just like going to Fred Meyer or going to Winco or Albertsons. It's specifically a combination of all of the places you would need to go to get every transaction made. In the Old Testament, it's often said that people would go to the city gate. Imagine a big wall around a city and. You go into the gate. It wasn't just a place to go in and out of. It was a place of commerce. It was a place of transaction. It was a place of social and commercial activity, kind of like the city hall of the day, the courthouse. And, and much like that in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament time period, this is where all that happened. Now, this is important because Paul took the gospel message of Jesus to the cultural center of his day. I believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ must be personal You have to personally receive Jesus Christ. You can't do it because you were born in church, Uh, you grew up in church, because you married someone who goes to church, or your mom or dad, you know, go to church. You have to have a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. Every person who follows Jesus does so willingly, it's personal. But it was never intended to be private. And too too many times in our culture, we're afraid of talking about Jesus because it's a personal meaning private. But it should never be private. It's not a private decision. It's an opportunity to have a relationship where you are so in love with the message of Jesus that it transforms you and you take it everywhere. Uh, today... Uh, if we want to you know, check out the news, I just go to the internet, I open up my tablet, go to the news app. I go to websites, you know, Oregon Live, uh, CNN, Fox, all those. I try to get a plethora of ideas and get a lot of voices. Back then, you would go to the Agora, and you would find out what the latest news is. Um, today, I would go to the bank or use my app, and I'd walk in, and I'd cash a check or deposit something. Back then, all the financial transactions happened right here in the Agora, Uh, If I want to get entertained, my family and I, we go to the theater, not right now because they're all closed. So we uh, just pop open Netflix or Amazon Prime. Back in the day, if you wanted to go to the theater or the arts or be entertained, you'd go to the Agora. You'd go to the marketplace. It was the place where everybody went. It was the hub of the city. And I love this because the Apostle Paul is not intimidated by the sheer scope and size of this, he walks boldly in and he begins to talk about the most important thing in his life, and that is his relationship with Jesus and his passion for other people knowing about it. I believe with confidence that we can go out this very week and know that the message of Jesus deserves to be discussed. When Paul went in and he began to talk, he used what was called the Socratic methods from Socrates, which. You know, it was very popular at that time. And it wasn't a debate. He didn't stand up on a soapbox and just preach loudly. It wasn't some kind of demeaning conversation. He didn't demand that they listen to him. He didn't try to destroy their arguments and philosophies. He dialogued with them. He asked questions. We don't do that a lot today. I mean, when you think about it, the reality is Paul was so firmly convinced of the The ability for the message of Jesus to withstand any opposition and any argument and any question that he willingly discussed it with anyone who would talk with him in the very heart of the city. What is that for you and for me today? Where is the Agora? Where's the Acropolis? Where's the religious philosophical worship going on? Where's the marketplace, the exchange of ideas? Probably these days on the internet, right? How do you have a discussion with someone? How do you respect people? How do you challenge their belief and are confident of your own belief? This is what Paul did. He, it says he had a debate, um, and this was a dialogue here, with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his the resurrection, they said... What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, this is kind of cool. A couple thoughts on this. There were two leading philosophies of the day, two uh, basic ideas, two roads you could go down. One was you would follow the Epicurean way, and the other was the Stoic way. And they were the, basically the, the two ways. Those were the options. If you wanted to follow the Epicurean way, it meant you denied yourself nothing. Nothing. Every pleasure was yours for the taking. After all, you only go around once in life, so indulge in any pleasure. Only by indulging in all the pleasures could you really appreciate what the gods have given you you got to get everything out of life, right? Because you only go around once. But the Stoic way was the opposite. It was, no, you should deny yourself because you only go around once, and you want to live a good, honorable life. You want to live a life of fatalistic duty so that you could seek the higher good. You could attain some kind of perfection. Epicureans, they just wanted bottom-line pleasure. Stoics, they wanted bottom-line perfection. But neither of these groups really truly believed the gods were personal. They only would give you whatever they wanted to give you to accomplish the life that you had. They called Paul a babbler. It's kind of a cool word, um, when they said he was a babbler, it, it, the literal word is a seed picker. And, and the picture, the idiom, the, the idea is of a little bird that goes around. You've seen him. You've been at a restaurant. You know. You've been at a cafe somewhere, and all the birds just flutter around, right? And there's a little bit of scraps left from this person's plate and a little bit of scraps left from this other person's plate. And so birds just go around and pick whatever food they can. It was a demeaning way. They were really kind of just basically looking down on Paul. They were basically saying, Paul, you don't have an original bone in your body. You're just grabbing this and you're grabbing that. And you're putting it together. You're, you're just smashing it all together and you're trying to formulate a philosophy. It's kind of like the people of our age Today, when they read a certain website or only one news source, and they go back and forth and they devour everything that's online, and then they come up with these, what they think are original ideas, but all they're doing is parroting. They're just spouting what other people want them to say on Facebook, right, <laughs> or on forums. And That's what they were saying. Paul, that's all you are. You don't have an idea. Now, the irony of all this, the humor in this, is that those very people, the Epicureans and the Stoics within 100, 200, and definitely by 300 years, would have all of their gods demolished, would have all of their philosophies destroyed. Because what Paul did was take the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, and ultimately over time, Christianity won and destroyed all the old gods and all the old philosophies. How did it happen? Well, I I believe that you can even see this today. When a culture is left to itself... When a culture begins to be adrift from any kind of foundational moral moorings, it will drift for a while, but one day it will crash against the rocks and break up and be destroyed. And all it was was just a matter of time before the love and passion and compassion of followers of Jesus, those that put God first and put neighbor next, they ended up winning over people. Because much like that day and much like our day, our culture promises true life, but it just can't deliver. It only delivers emptiness. I think about our world today with the coronavirus, the COVID-19, is that it is really opening up the reality of people. I watched a report this last week. A person who had survived the 1977 New York blackout said, I know what it was like back then. I've been through disasters. This is different. Everybody is far more selfish. That's why everybody bought out all the toilet paper, right? That's a very personal thing, right? Nobody bought toilet paper to give it away to others. Everybody is scrambling for themselves. We're in it only for ourselves. My friends, we have an incredible opportunity to speak into this, a love and passion, a passion for God and a compassion for others. We can go make a run and buy all the toilet paper and give it away in Jesus' name. Now, the Stoics believe that if you lived a good and moral life, everything would work out for you. Only by sacrificing your pleasures could you experience true life. The Epicureans believed that you had to live life to the fullest and go after everything and push aside all morals and all understanding so you could get everything out because you wanted to indulge to find peace. Both were wrong, and both are still wrong today. Those are empty paths to walk down. Those who try to indulge every pleasure and numb every sensation... End up in recovery groups, people. End up broken. End up empty and lonely. Those who abstain from all pleasures to live a a really good, clean life, a life of perfection, they end up being alone too because those are the religious Pharisees who think that they can attain something. Both of these cultural elites, they laughed at Paul. What he was doing, though, and what really you and I could do today is to expose the deep need. And the empty futility of what their culture has to offer and show them Christ. So it says there, they took him up to a high place. It's interesting. Uh, because of what Paul was doing down there in the Agora, the marketplace, they took him up to the Areopagus, the high place where the philosophers went, the high council, the city. Some call it Mars Hill. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. This is the, the online of the world. All they did was they just gather around, and they talked about it. Now, this is what it looked like back then. It's what it looks like right now. This is the Areopagus. If you're up on top of the Acropolis, okay, I've got to get right, Athens is the city, the Acropolis is the big mountain with all of the temples, the Agora is down below, and this is the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And all you have to do is walk up, they have steps now, but you would climb up and you would stand up here and you would debate all the philosophy, all the theology, and all the intellectuals. This was kind of like the king of the hill, and this is where they hung out. The reality is this, is that they gathered together to talk about their ideas. And what Paul was saying down there, the credibility of his conversation led them to say, let's go into the coffee shop. Let's sit down and have a meal together. Let's have a face-to-face. It says, so Paul, in this sense, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. They were just covering their bases. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. Now, first of all, Paul commends them for their religious desire. Everybody has a desire for the spiritual life, there's a longing in every person. There's a search for God. And Paul begins by developing some common ground. And he commends them for their passion for religion. And then he finds something and he noticed it up on the Acropolis just to cover their bases, an an altar to an unknown God. And he uses that. It wasn't an altar to the true God, to Yahweh. But he says, I want to tell you about that God. And he says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his need. He's getting a little critical of all their temples here for he has no needs he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries what paul is saying is this he's explaining that that he worships a very big god a, a very real god the greek gods of that day the roman gods were temperamental Uh, That you could tick them off in just a moment and you dared not upset the gods or they would destroy you. They might get mad at you and fire down lightning from heaven. You had to live in fear so you could appease the gods. Paul jumps in and says, hey, I know you're searching. I know you have an emptiness. I know you have a longing. I know that there's a spiritual center to your soul. And I want to tell you about the true God. I don't think people today by and large deny a spirituality. They deny religion. They deny organized religion. But people believe, by and large, there is a spiritual part of our lives. Paul spoke into the spiritual search for meaning, for understanding and belonging. And you and I can still do it today. Paul let them know that there was a God that was so much bigger than they could ever build a temple to. As impressive as their temples were. There was a God that created everything. He didn't need to be served. They were offering sacrifices continuously up on that hill to their God or goddess. The real God doesn't need your sacrifice. He wants something closer, more permanent. Paul says this. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I just want to stop for a second. That is a good reminder for everyone. I don't know where you are watching this, uh, whether it's your home or it's out somewhere. I don't really know. I don't know where in the world you are, actually, but I know this. Wherever you are, God has already been there, and he's He's right there next to you. God, if we just would turn around, we would see that he's been walking with us the whole entire time. Paul says, all this search that you've been making, this path you've created for your life, this pleasure or no pleasure, this, this perfection or just let me just give into everything— I want you to know that there's a God who created everything. And that God wants you more than you want either your stoicism or your pleasure. He is not far from any one of us. You, you, you might be, probably, you are alone, or you're with your family watching this. You might be isolated. You might, for the next few weeks or months, we don't know how long, be alone. As Pastor Aaron shared, where even two or three are gathered, but I'll go so far as say even one, wherever you are, That's where God is, because you can't escape the God who's everywhere. And he's put all these things in motion. I believe even this week, he is allowed to be put in motion. He has maneuvered things so you would see him, you would know him. And then Paul does a beautiful thing here. He quotes from their own poets and philosophers. He says, here's a quote, For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, he affirms their search for meaning. We shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. I mean, Paul masterfully quotes the music of his day, the movies of his day, the media of his day. He quotes Netflix. He quotes Amazon Prime. He quotes the news sources. He quotes whatever reached people's heart. And he says that, you know, those people actually without knowing it were speaking truth and speaking the elements. It goes on to say God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. That's the crux of the gospel. To turn from your sins, to walk a different way and turn toward him. The idea is that we're all going a certain path. We're all going astray from God. Turn around, do a 180, and head to God. So repent and return to God. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Christ. He has set Jesus up. We will all bow before him one day. I I was thinking about this. I used to argue with people who said there are many ways to God, and now I believe them. I actually believe all roads lead to God. They all lead to Jesus. You just don't want to be there when they lead to the end. Because the fact that the Bible says one day everybody's going to bow before him. And only those that have bowed in this lifetime will have freedom in Christ. The rest, the rest will be judged according to their deeds. Yes, all roads lead to Jesus, but not in the way you might think. He proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul gets to the resurrection. But the reality is this, is that he doesn't get very far here. It says when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Some followed Jesus because of this message. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Now, Paul didn't get to finish his speech. Why? Because nobody believed in anything beyond this life. The resurrection, though, is the crux of the gospel message It's not just one of the points we believe. It is the point. It's everything. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you have nothing. Without the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're just empty fools and our lives are hopeless. How do we know that God exists? How do we know that we're not just all in some evolved religious search? Because Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again. And that is a fact of history. If you claim To believe in the resurrection of Jesus if you believe that he came and died on the cross for us and he rose again then you have something worth sharing and if Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the grave you must make a decision about this it must either be embraced or just be rejected or ignored that's exactly what happened to Paul on that mountain on that hill one of the great things we can be reminded of here is that not all hearts will be open to the message of Jesus not all minds will be able to have an honest conversation about Jesus he knew his culture and he spoke the language of his culture so friends where is your athens today where, where is the city where everybody goes to it could be your city it could be a large metropolitan place it could be a country store right where is your your uh, your your marketplace your agora Where do you gather together? It could be the gym. It could be work, the cooler. More importantly, though, where is the Areopagus, the place where you have an honest conversation with people? Paul was a master at this. And you know why he did all this? In fact, he not only tells us why he did it, he tells us how he did it in 1 Corinthians 9. I love this. Take a look at this. Paul says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people. Why? To bring many to Christ. Paul was willing to change his preference, his own desire to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew. Why? Not because I'm a hypocrite. I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. He didn't have to. But he did it. He submitted himself to the law to win Jews to Christ. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. He goes on to say this. He says, when I am with the Gentiles, the Greeks and Athens, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. I don't follow the Jewish law. I don't list all the things that I do. I don't even care about that because I care about the people I'm trying to reach because I want to bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. I don't go out and sin. He goes on to say this: "When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. Why? For I want to bring the weak to Christ?" Yes, and here it is: I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Why I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. The reality is this: is that you are perfectly situated in your neighborhood. In your school, in your job, in your community, wherever you go, wherever you are, because God wants you to be there to reach people for Christ. But who are you reaching for Christ? Who are you building common ground with? Are you willing to change your preferences to us, so as to win people for Christ? You know, in Acts 17, you can actually kind of look down on Paul because he didn't win a lot of people to Christ. Peter preached in Jerusalem and 3,000 people came to Christ. Paul preached and only a few. But that's the way it is sometimes. Sometimes when you talk about Jesus, people will sneer and mockery. Some will subject you to laughter. Some people will just mock you. But some people are searching for meaning. Why would it be any different for you and for me? But you and I need to go out. We have opportunities this very week to build common ground to see a need that's out there with this virus to see that what's going to grow into loneliness and isolation to be able to make phone calls to send emails to maybe knock on a door stay a safe six foot distance you know but to love people in the name of jesus and i believe that when we serve them they will see christ in us and we can have a conversation about jesus I'd like to pray right now. I'm going to bring the worship team up. I want to offer an opportunity for us just to kind of acknowledge what God has done and said through Paul. Father, for everybody out here, specifically those who follow Christ, may this encourage us to open up our mouths, to open up our hearts, to open up our eyes and see people all around us, and to engage in a conversation, not to demean people, to destroy them, but to have an honest heart-to-heart dialogue and share our passion for Jesus. Father, people are more open today. We know that people come to you in tension and transition and trouble. And today, this week, people could respond to this message or in the weeks to come. And it could be, yeah. odds are, yeah, people are watching that are not followers of Christ. They may be church attenders. They may have not even ever poked their foot, walked in a, into a church. But the reality is this, is that they've been trying to live their best life possible been trying to pursue pleasure or perfection and you speak into that because what really matters is that all of the pleasure of the world comes from the perfection that jesus was and is and what he did on the cross for you and for me god i I just pray that we would be willing to receive it we'd be willing to ask questions and father if there's anyone here who's just have their heart opened up may they just send an email in to pastors at isunrise.com and ask a question We could call and we could have a conversation. We could talk about you because you're the hope that we have. Without you, we have nothing. This world is empty and one day will pass away. But in you, we have life. In you, we live and breathe and have our meaning. And so we pray, Father, as the weeks come and weeks go, that we would put our faith and trust in you alone and be strong. the passion for communicating Christ to whatever culture you've placed us in. In Christ's name, amen.